Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike. Introducing this week's guest before we start up the episode, it's Hugh Van Kylenberg. Um, Hugh, you may know from uh, a bunch of stuff that he does, including his work on the Resilience Project, which is a fantastic organization trying to help people build resilience in their lives. He also has a brand new book out. Uh, it's out now and it's called Let Go. So uh, definitely go and pick up that book and check it out after listening to this episode. As well as that, he also has a podcast called The Imperfects, talking about the many different uh, imperfections on people. There's also a bunch of other great content on The Imperfects feed as well. So definitely check that out. If you like Willosophy and want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash Willosophy for as little as a dollar a month. You get access to these episodes a day early and without any ads, which is obviously great. Um, And yeah, you can also head to our Twitter at WillosophyPod to let us know what you thought. Lots of people write there and we love seeing your feedback. And the Instagram at WillosophyPod to see all of the fantastic artwork by James Fosdyke. If you want to support Will and see him do stand-up live, he is currently doing his uh, live improvised show, What You're Talking About, Will, and he's doing shows in uh, Brunswick Heads, Sydney, and Brisbane. So if you're in any of those areas, head to willanderson.com and you can find out where those shows are. Uh, This is the second last episode of Willosophy for a year, so we will be publishing just up to just before New Year's. So uh, this will probably be the last episode until Christmas. So from all of us here at the Willosophy team, we hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a safe holiday and a safe New Year as well. One episode to go, so uh, either me or Will or Will or I will speak to you before then. Uh, But for now, I will pass it over to this great episode of Willosophy, recorded uh, several months ago now, uh, between Will Anderson and Hugh Van Kylenberg. Enjoy. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So, who are you? My name is Hugh Van Kylenberg, and it's, a, it's actually a great place to start with that because it, the most commonly asked question I get, Will, by a mile is whenever I'm doing a gig is how do I pronounce your <laughs> how on earth do I pronounce your surname? So, it's Hugh Van Kylenberg. I've actually been. I, I tell you the best. I tell you the best. Um, variation of my name I've ever heard was I was speaking at an AFL football club to the playing group and I won't say which one because I think it's the coach would probably prefer I didn't but I the person who brought me into the club introduced me to the coach just before I went up on the little stage to speak to the boys and he's um he was talking to one of his players so he wasn't listening and the, and the this guy goes this is Hugh and he turned around and he goes good on you Stu <laughs> and he goes and the guy and the guy goes uh no Hugh and he goes yeah good on you Stu again and just turn around and I said, oh, sorry, mate, because I knew, I knew he had to introduce me to the players. And I thought, he's got to get this right. So I said, sorry, mate, it, it's Hugh as in, and I panicked. I said, it's Hugh as in like Hugh Jackman. And he went, all right, good stuff. And he turned around and kept talking to the player. And then two minutes later, he had to get up and introduce me to everyone. And he goes, righto, boys, special guest in today. We're very lucky to have, um... and I saw him just pause and go, oh, shit, I've forgotten his name. And I, then you could see him thinking Hugh Jackman. And he goes, this is Jack. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, not even in the ballpark. That's what I like. Just call me Jack. So I did this whole presentation as Jack. <laughs> what I enjoy about uh, that story is, uh, you know, somebody's obviously emceed a lot of events in my life, you know. Getting people's names right is something that I really, I really try to do. Like, I think it's just like the first port of respect is like getting somebody's name right. But I think it's also because, and again, quick side note, we'll get to the podcast in a minute, but I think you'll enjoy this story. So I am Will Anderson and I was doing my second gig and uh, Marty Sheargold, I'm going to name him because I've talked to him about it on the podcast anyway, but Marty Sheargold was uh, hosting my second ever gig and uh, Marty had been paying about the same amount of attention to my name as uh, that guy introducing (laughs) you at that football club had been playing to your name and he got out on stage and he introduced me as Will Robinson, of course, from the famous show <laughs> Lost in Space. But that would have been fine because nobody at that stage knows who I am anyway. So I can perform under Will Robinson. Nothing wrong with that. I can do my set. But he obviously gets backstage, looks at the little piece of paper where they pinned everybody's names, realizes that he said the wrong name. So I'm about a minute into my set and then suddenly I just feel over my shoulder, Marty's come back out on stage and he just leans into the microphone and goes, Anderson. Will Anderson. <laughs> uh, I heard the other day, I can't remember where I heard. I just heard a story about Luke Darcy, who I'm sure you know very well. I do. Um, well, I know you know very well. He introduced um, the rapper 360. He introduced him as 360. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember where else he goes. But he talked it up like he really knew who he was. He goes, everybody will be so pumped to hear. Today we've got 360. <laughs> Well, he loves that show, (laughs) AFL 360, that he watches. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, it's nice to have you here, Hugh. um, uh, And uh, Hugh or Stu, nice to have you both here. I appreciate it. Now, the reason that uh, we don't uh, know each other and the reason I was very interested in um, having you on this show was um, in regard to, well, a word that I've been thinking about a lot during the times that we are going through. And I don't think I need to over-explain the times that we are going through as we record this. Um, both Melbourne and Sydney are in lockdown in Australia. And the word resilience keeps coming to mind. And I just want to mm. start with that word and tell me what the word resilience means to you and your life. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a, it's a great privilege. I'm, I'm at the moment doing my national speaking tour or what you can do in this in these strange times and I feel like I hear your name all the time because theatres the places I'm playing at the moment they love telling me that you've been there like it's one of the common I'll say oh great theatre there's two there's two people that mention they'll go I'll say oh it's a great theatre here thanks for having me it's really beautiful and they'll go yeah, Will Anderson's played here, actually. Yeah. It's like the, it's one of the first things I say. They'll go, and then the other one is the Wiggles. They'll go, and the Wiggles. <laughs> so so I hear your name a lot at the moment. So I'm very excited to be doing this today. Uh, resilience to me, I think, I mean, I should be able to answer this a lot quicker. <laughs> but to me, it's, it's the ability to sort of, I, I can't remember who said this. I heard a psychologist say once, it's the ability to bungee jump through the pitfalls of life, which I like, but I think there's an extra element to that with resilience. I think it's, I think resilience is bouncing back, but then also bouncing forward, if that makes sense. Like you become stronger because of what you've been through. Um, whilst it can be really hard at the time, it becomes part of your story, who you are, and because of that, you become a bit stronger, a bit wiser, and a bit more insightful and all those kind of things. So in, in relation to what we're going through in the world right now, 
I mean, the research, I, I, I'm always fascinated by the research on this stuff. The research says that one of the key characteristics to being resilient, and I think it's really poignant with what you do, Will, the key bit of research says that the most common characteristic amongst resilient people is, is positivity and positive emotion. Um, not to say that these people, when something goes wrong, bury their head in the sand and pretend nothing's going on, but they still find reasons to smile, they still find reasons to laugh, and they still involve themselves in activities that will bring positive emotion into their life. That's one of the key, one of the most common, common characteristics amongst, amongst resilient people, which is why I think, you know, right now when I get stuck on Instagram, I find myself going to things like, you know, for the news, Batuta Advocate and stuff like that, you know, it's positive emotion. It's, yeah, it's really shit what's going around the world right now. But then when you have them slamming the prime minister, you kind of laugh, <laughs> you can you can kind of laugh about what's well, a really awful situation, really. So positive emotion for mine is what really, and I'm not saying, so everyone just be positive about it. That That's not what it's about at all. It's about looking for things that will still make you smile no matter what you're going through, I suppose. Okay, so that is an interesting idea for a start, which is the difference between think positive. The worst thing you could possibly say to somebody who's going through a terrible situation is like, look at the positives or think positive or like, you mm. know, put it bluntly like that. It's unhelpful, you know, yeah. for a lot of people. It's annoying. It's annoying as well. Yeah. It's annoying. It's unhelpful. Like other people have got it worse. Yeah, that's unhelping either. Yeah. Other people <laughs> do have it worse. I'm willing to yeah. acknowledge that other people yeah. have it worse. I also have it bad right now. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, so there is a difference between think positive, you know, that blunt sort of message and the power of like, I guess, you know, using positive thinking and work around bringing positive, you know, thought patterns into your life and structures that might, you know, like exercises that you can do that make your brain work in a way that is more helpful to you in those situations than less so. Yeah, there's a beautiful story. So the lady who did this research and, and found that positive emotion was such a key component to resilience, she tells a beautiful story about, so this is in 2001, she was doing this research and she was in New York and she had gathered all this data on a whole heap of people in her research project and she was thinking, right, what is the most common characteristic amongst these people? But, but what she hadn't done was worked out, how am I going to test their resilience? And she wasn't sure how on earth she was going to be able to test how resilient these people were then to work out what the most common characteristic was. But then 9-11 happened and she thought, oh, well, this is completely – her name's Barbara Fredrickson. She thought, this is completely stuffed up my research. I better park this for all. No one wants to be doing this kind of thing now. And she was on a train in New York a couple of days after 9-11 and she saw a couple on the train and they were crying and they were consoling each other. And then she turned around and, and she looked back a couple minutes later and she realized they were sort of laughing about something. Well, they had tears, but they were laughing about something. And she thought, no, this is the perfect time. This is the perfect time for me to do my research. And she went back to those people. And um, what she did was she looked at the data of, well, and she found that positive emotion was the most common characteristic over the next three to five years that people would bounce back quickly. But she, in the in the research, there were stories like there was a couple who had lost a loved one in 9-11 um, and they, three nights after that, they had their book club and someone emailed them and said, well, obviously we'll cancel that. And they said, no, 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 no. We've got to do this stuff. This is the stuff we've got to keep doing. This is the stuff that brings us happiness in our lives. And it might feel a little bit forced at the moment, but we've got to keep looking for opportunities to experience joy. Um, so that's sort of like an anecdote about how that works, I think, um, is that coffee you got there, Will? Yeah, it is definitely coffee. <laughs> Looks like a big coffee you've got <laughs> as well. <laughs> Thank you, honey. 
and a truffle egg cheese toasty. So well, <laughs> there you go. I mean, You're looking up opportunities to bring joy to your life. <laughs> I was going to say people will really enjoy listening to me eat that during this. <laughs> It'd be perfect. Don't Uh, hold back. That's going to get cold over the next hour. It gets stuck into it. uh, So uh, it's interesting though, isn't it, that in these worst of times, because you you spoke Mm. about social media. You said you go to Instagram and you laugh at the Batuta advocate and their look at life and it brings some sort of, you know, uh, uh, George Carlin described that role of humor as, you know, seeing that uh, piece of grass that's grown through the concrete and seeing how heroic that feels, you know, like you should not be here, but you've decided to, you know, force your way through here. And there's something really empowering about that. But it's interesting to me as a, you know, somebody who works in the arts, you know, during this time of, um, you know, COVID, it's been incredibly challenging for mm. a lot of people who work in my industry. And, you know, you talked at the start about the idea you're touring around, you're playing these venues. You're You're super aware of the idea that, at a minute's notice, you can't cross a border or do your show or have as many people in that you know talk as you were previously going to have in that moment. And that story now is being played out over eighteen months, and it's you know getting played out over the next you know probably eighteen months as well. I, I look at the other social media, Twitter, at the moment, and it feels like every single person on there, whatever they're feeling, they're at it. They start at a nine out of ten. And it only goes higher. You know, there's this level of hyper tension or whatever it is that feels like it's bubbling away in our society at the moment that I think we're going to have some incredible challenges dealing with what the ramifications of living through this heightened stress level are. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to unpack there just with what you just said then. But I I feel like on the topic of social media, and this is what I learned from, are you in Sydney or Melbourne right now, Will? I'm in uh, regional New regional South Wales. Okay. So I learned a lot during last year. So I'm in Melbourne. I learned a lot last year. And I was sort of, we went back into lockdown last night at midnight. And it was funny. I was sort of lying in bed last night thinking, okay, what did I learn from last year? And don't wait a few weeks. I mean, I don't know how long this lockdown will last in Melbourne. Hopefully by the time you air this podcast, we're out of here. But I, I was reflecting on the stuff that I need to do better. And the lessons I learned. And one of them was around social media. And I'm not saying we should only follow like-minded people on social media. I think that's a damaging way to, it just doesn't work. But I think in times like this, if someone frustrates you or annoys you or angers you or brings negative emotion with their post, you just got to unfollow them just for now. Like, because you're right, it's so heightened and we're so hypersensitive that someone says something that if there wasn't a pandemic, you'd go, what a dickhead, and you'd move on pretty quickly. Yeah. But now you're like, what the f-? And you really sort of get upset about it and derails you for five or 10 minutes. So I, last night, lay in bed just unfollowing <laughs> these people. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going, do you annoy me? Yep. Do you annoy me? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, but I think, so, so that's my take on social media at the moment. And I am, I am paying very close attention to the people and this is just for me, what, what I, you know, I've, I, I love comedy. I think it's one of my favorite things in the world. So that's what I'm paying very close attention to at the moment, the people who make me laugh um, because it feels good. So if I'm going to be on social media for, I was going to say 10 minutes, but that's just, <laughs> that's just wishful thinking, but five hours a day, if I'm going to be, for, you know, I want, I want to laugh, not get angry and, and we can control that. Like we, we can go, well, I'm not going to follow that person. I'm going to follow this person. And again, I'm not saying long-term we should just follow the people. I mean, maybe we can, I just feel like. 
I mean, the news is another thing, right? Like, I got stuck in Melbourne last year of going, I would watch the news from like, my daughter wakes up at an ungodly hour. So I'm watching BBC News at 5am and then I'm watching ABC News in Melbourne at 6. By the time it's 8 o'clock, I've watched three hours of news and it's just demoralizing at the moment. So I think work out where you want to get your news from, listen to it for 10 minutes, find out what you need to know. And then for, and this is what works for me. Well, other people will be saying, no, I need to, I get anxious if I don't know what's going on. So you work out what's best for you, but have a little bit of a plan around it. I know, but I do feel like we've lost the ability, like giving people permission to say, do what's good for you. Yeah. Because I think that there is sometimes this societal expectation that you are following along with everybody yeah. else. And it occurred to me yesterday because I've had a specific interest in what's going on in Sydney with their lockdown because I have a work project that is on in mm. Sydney that I have been doing from a distance because of the lockdown. But at some stage, I am going to basically have to choose to drive into a lockdown. That is, <laughs> there is a choice in my next couple of weeks that says drive into a lockdown, not knowing when that lockdown is is going to finish and all the ramifications that go with that. So I've had an interest, a professional interest in following what the numbers are and what the trends are and where everybody's been locked down. But yesterday, because the Victorian lockdown, when we're recording this, there's the New South Wales lockdown, but then the Victor Victorian lockdown was announced again. It was press conferences all day. I only needed two bits of information. Those two bits of information I could have got yep. in a minute. And, but I watched like four hours of this stuff. And at the end of the day, I felt just <laughs> terrible. And I'm like, but I didn't yeah. need to. I, I had the bit of information I needed. Yeah. And then I could have, like, imagine four hours of your day. We, if you just said to me, tomorrow, you can just have four hours off. You know, you can go to the beach, you can walk the dog, you can read a book, whatever. You can have four hours off because I saved you four hours because you got the two bits of information you needed and then you turned off the telly and you walked away. And, and I'll also give else. you another four hours off. You don't have to go on social media. <laughs> so it's eight hours off. You get eight <laughs> hours off the day. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. It's funny you say about uh, we're, we're trying so hard to – I guess I'm trying to give examples to people of what I feel like has been really helpful to me, but – uh, I, yes. Well, that's good. That's that's a good. That's what I want to hear. That's all we can do, really. Like, we we live in a world, and this is why I like your approach in this area as well. Is one of the things that, um, and we haven't really spoken about the resilience project and like in in detail yet to give people. But obviously, this is an area that you are very passionate about in your life. Teaching people, you know, about this is something, and particularly, you know, younger people, but people of you know all ages, professional sporting teams, like a wide range of people. But what I like about your approach is that you do not have a one-size-fits-all mm. approach because I think one of the most damaging things with any, you know, thing that will tell you here's a way that I can help you in your life is that they all tend to present themselves as if you just believe everything that's in this book or if you believe everything that this group believes, then this will fix all of your problems because it worked for me, it'll work for everybody else. I like that you tend to offer, here is my experience, and maybe there are some things in my experience that might be helpful to yeah, you. Yeah, and there's a very specific reason for that. I, I find, I mean, it's ironic because I, I guess it's the category I fall on, but I find well-being, self-help kind of stuff, it does my head in. Like I hate- I tried not to label you because oh, I was- Thank like, you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I, I hate it. I hate the, you know, the titles of books like saying- I mean, I'm very wary. I wrote a book which pretty much falls under this category, but it's like, 
I don't know. It's like do what I say and then you'll be happy. This is the format of happiness. This is the – like everyone's different. We've all got different experiences in life. You can't tell a person who's come from horrific trauma that, hey, just try doing this and then, and then life will be great. You know, everything will work out for you. And we all come from very different starting points. So my take on everything is just that as human beings, we love stories. Like we just love listening to stories and we love laughing. And so anything I try and do with my presentations is just here are some stories – that have helped me, have helped some other people I know, have helped a variety of people. Have a listen, do what you want with it, totally fine. You know, like if you if it helps you, then that then that's terrific. With the resilience project, I, I always get a little bit insecure when I'm asked about this because I I feel like a lot of people have heard it and they go, Fine, not this again. But I, I kind of want to give I'll give it a different kind of spin, I, I guess. Four people have heard it before. So the reason I I guess I care. I was going to say deeply, but I think desperately might be a better word about the topic of mental health and resilience is is because of my little sister, Georgia. So when she was 14 years old and I was 17, my little brother, Josh, was 11 at the time, she stopped eating. She she was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa and an eating disorder and it, and it ravaged her. Um, well, I should say it also ravaged our family. And I think anyone listening to this right now who has a mental illness or knows some of the mental illness will know it's not just that person who's affected. The people who love them are affected in a really, in a really dramatic way as well. I suppose. I mean, I I remember when my sister was eighteen years old. She was first admitted to hospital because she dropped below crisis weight. My sister's about five foot six, five foot seven, so she's not too short. And I think she was weighing in around thirty-one kilograms. Um, so she was really sick. And I I remember going back from the hospital after the first night, and. I think everyone can remember, for a lot of people I speak to, they have a very vivid memory of whenever their parents cried. And I, and I remember my dad that night when we got back from the hospital, he was doing the dishes, he was hunched over the over the sink and he was just crying. And I, I remember, I'd only ever seen him cry once before and I was, seven, I was 17 at the time. No, I was, I was older than I was 20 at the time. Um, I'd only ever seen him cry once before. And I remember thinking to myself, we're not a happy family anymore. We, we I... We were happy. We're no longer happy, and and I guess around that age, I became pretty fascinated with the question: What is it that makes people happy? Not because I thought, because if I can find that out, I can fix my sister. I just felt immense pressure as the eldest sibling to help mum and dad feel happy and to help my little brother feel happy again. I knew I couldn't help my sister, but and that's when I became really fascinated, I guess, with that question and the and the topic of what makes us not like. How do we make everyone feel happy full stop? Just like how do we – the things we can do that just make us happier or experience more joy. And and um, and then I didn't have an answer to that for a long time. I, I went into teaching thinking, well, if I'm a teacher, I'll be able to help kids. I, I even went and taught at a girls' school straight out of uni because I thought there'll be like there'll be so many eating disorders there and I'll be able to help them all. I don't know how. I, I had no idea of what I was doing. I just tried to be a nice person. Um, but that didn't surprise me and that didn't really help – anyone but then when i went to when i was 20 i was 28 and i went and just on a trip to india that my ex-partner said we should go i didn't want i didn't want to go if i'm being very honest i was very happy in melbourne but i sort of followed her and and um we were both teachers and we decided to do some volunteer teaching and ended up in a village where there was no running water um there was no and the reason we went there for mine was they i had no money back then and they said oh if you volunteer here for two weeks you can live with the principal and you get three meals a day. And I went, oh, jackpot, this will be amazing. And when I got there, I realized it was a desert community. You know, I was in the Himalayas. There's no running water, 
no electricity. Well, sorry, there is electricity. They just couldn't afford to have it switched on. And there was no bed. We're sleeping on the floor. And I remember night one thinking, there's no way, there's no way I'm staying for two weeks. Not a chance. But my first day in the school changed my life forever because I met this one particular kid, but I guess all of them. I remember sitting there in this classroom. There's no resources. The kids are sitting on the floor. There's no tables. There's no chairs. There's a dirt floor. There's a blackboard, one piece of chalk. And I've got them for the whole day. And after 20 minutes, I'm, I'm there going, I have never seen joy like this in my entire life. <laughs> I'm looking out the window across the desert going, there's nothing here. How are these kids so unbelievably happy? And and I I forgot I wanted to go home early. I, I The first week, went, it just flew. And I remember I was just so in love with this place and I was so in love with these people. And I ended up living there for three and a half months. And because I remember thinking, I can't go home. I, I need to stay here. I need to live here as long as it takes to work out. What are these people doing every day that makes them so happy? And that's when I learned a lot off them. Uh, and I went there thinking, oh, they're so lucky. They've got someone going to teach them conversation English, aren't they? These guys lucky. And gee, this is what a thrill for them. But you know, within about half an hour of the school, I remember going, oh, I'm an idiot. Like, I'm such a dickhead. Like, what a just strutting in here. Like, they taught me so much, uh, and I am—I will never forget the impact they had on me. And subsequently, so many people now in Australia, because I have told the stories of these beautiful people, and um, it's turned out from what I hear, it's helped a lot of people um, across the country, Australia and New Zealand. So uh, that's a very long answer to the question, Will, sorry. <laughs> it's a good answer, though, because I think about this a, a lot. Here's a really selfish example, but I'll, I think it'll make sense. Uh, so... Um, Billy Connolly is the reason that I do stand-up comedy. My mum took me to see him when I was 17 years old. I sat in the room that night and I, like, knew. Like, weirdly, because I was a 17-year-old kid from a farm, I went off and became a journalist. I, at that stage, there was no idea that I would end up having, like, you know, a reasonably decent you know career as a stand-up comedian myself. Like, you know, play some venues that even you and the Wiggles play. So, like, things have gone okay. <laughs> uh, but I always think I, I wish I could thank Billy for that too, because it wasn't just the joy he gave me, but he inspired me to do something that hopefully has brought some other people joy. Right? So he should get a like a cut of that as well. Like he should get a pat on the back, not just for what he did, but for like you know passing it on for me to pass it on. And that feels to me what you're saying is that these children taught you something, but they didn't just teach you something. That person standing there, but because you've taken that story and you've taken that message and you've given it to other people and so suddenly this little you know group of people in these most horrible of conditions who you know immediately had a point of view on life that you like you know were able to share with other people and become teachers to all these other people as well it's fucking incredible and when you look at the world like that the world makes sense when you look at the world on instagram or twitter or what we do every fucking day the world just doesn't make any sense anymore. But when you hear that story, that just makes complete sense to me of what human beings should be like. And we always should be learning from each other and passing on those stories to each other. So I've got two things to say on that. And I, I love your example so much. And here's why. As a kid growing up, uh, so I'm 41 now. As a kid growing up um, in Australia with my family, we as a family were obsessed with Billy Connolly. I, we watched, we had his video, his video cassettes at home and we had three of them and we just, I could recite them all word for word. And I watched when, when we were really struggling as a family, I'd be watching, we'd be watching Billy Connolly on the couch 
but I'd also be watching the impact it was having on mum and dad. And I was watching the impact it was having on my brother Josh. And even my sister was laughing along to it as well, even when she was really sick. And I remember thinking, this is like, I, I, so here's the thing, Will. I thought, I want to do that. I want to do what Billy Connolly does. I just want to do that. And all through, like when I went to uni, I was like, I'd love, I'd love to do stand-up comedy, but I'm not brave enough to take a punt and do, I'm not brave enough to do what you did, right? So I found this safe space eventually where I'd get up on stage and tell stories to make people happy. And when I started out, I'd put in the odd gag or the odd funny story. And you know how Billy Connolly with his career, it was like he played music and then he would do, a, he would talk it a bit in the middle and people would laugh. And then more and more shows went on, the less he played his musical instrument, his banjo, and the more he talked. I've kind of found myself, um, you probably know Beck Sutherland. I don't know if you met Beck across the journey. Yeah, so, yeah, so Beck's managing me at the moment, and and we talk about Billy Connolly all the time. I've said to her, I'm sort of taking out a bit of the serious stuff and trying to, I'm, at age 41, <laughs> I'm becoming a little more brave to try and tell their stories. So I finished, I did a show at the Princess Theatre two nights ago in in, Hobe, in uh, Launceston, and a a man came up to me afterwards, right? And I and you'll appreciate this, but it was the, probably the highlight of my life. He said, um, he goes, this will mean nothing to you, but I want you to know I felt like I was watching a young Billy Connolly tonight. And I said, oh. I said, mate, you don't, you will, I am very well aware of what a compliment that is. That is the loveliest thing. Now, I don't particularly agree with him. I, I um, my, my point is, well, I, I, I feel you. I, 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 he's had the exact same impact on me. And I was thinking the other day how much I just, Beck was telling me a story about how she met him. And I was thinking, I'd love to meet him and say, you are a very big reason to why I've been doing the work that I'm doing. Not as a comedian. I'm not a comedian. I'm far from a comedian, but I, I perform in large part because of you. So I, I, we definitely have that in common. And also, I mean, talk about a story of, you know, somebody you found joy in some of the most uncompromising of all circumstances, like a victim of sexual abuse, like growing up, like, you know, in some of the hardest places surrounded by some of the hardest people in the world and finding his way from the docks to being the, you know, one of the greatest entertainers ever in the history of entertainment, in my opinion. So like, I mean, but he always had joy. Like, I mean, what he brought to the table. Like, I mean, he has what we call in comedy funny bones. You know, yeah. he always, whenever you saw him on a talk show, and that was my sitting in that audience with him. It's funny you say the effect that he had on your mum and your dad. Like, that's my memory of that night. I can't remember a joke that he did no. in his set. <laughs> But I remember looking around at these people who were like, you know, from age 12 to age, you know, 80 because it's Billy Connolly and them all. I was like, can you imagine that this kid and this grandma would ever find anything else in common? No. <laughs> like if we made them, if we got them out in the foyer and made them talk to each other for an hour, it would be the worst hour that each of them ever spent in their entire <laughs> life because they have nothing in common. But look at them united in this moment, both enjoying you know, this magician on stage. I, I find that, yeah, it's absolutely powerful. But, okay, so are you, so you have this experience. What? When do you decide that you're going to, you know, bring that knowledge back? Because there's a difference between having the experience for yourself and deciding, no, here's something that I think I can share with other people. Like, wh wh where does that come from? Well... Yeah, it's a great question because I, if I'm being very honest, I didn't. When I came back to Melbourne, I thought I'd love people to know this, but I'll talk to my sister about it because it's really about her for me. And then a friend of mine who was teaching at the time said, "Oh, do you want to?" Her name is Bianca. She said, "Do you want to come into my class and tell them about where you've just been, what you've just done?" And a group of primary school kids, and 
I said, yeah, that's fine. I didn't really do any preparation. I took photos in with me, like a, a PowerPoint presentation, basically. That was it, like 10 photos from my trip. And I spoke to the kids for an hour. And in that hour, I saw them. I... I, just, I, I don't know how to dis- I don't know how to put it into words, but it just I saw I saw what it did to them these stories, and I hadn't put it into any structure. I hadn't had any really. I just told them about my trip, but what I talked about was the three things that I saw these people practice every day, which we talk about a lot at the Resilience Project, which is gratitude, and empathy, and mindfulness, and the impact it has on you when you do these things. And I just saw the look on these kids' faces, and it was like this thing of like, oh God, I needed this so badly. Like I needed, and they they were ten and eleven years old, but you could tell it was something they needed to hear, and and they, and they, and the laughter and the and the smiles, and then the tears at other points, and and I and the feeling I had after that, from a very selfish point of view, was like that felt amazing. Like I'm only speaking to twenty five kids here, but that felt amazing. It was different to being a teacher where you're up there teaching a lesson from a textbook, and it's like it was just it was storytelling, and I could see. The impact it had and I went, right, I'm going to do this. This is my job. I'm going to go to schools and tell these stories. And so I called my old school and they said, yeah, come and come and speak at, at, at your old school. Then I spoke to the the school where I taught before I left and they went, yes, come and do that. And I was like, I'm on fire. This is, I'm quitting teaching. I'm, I'm going to do this. And then, and then no one <laughs> wanted, <laughs> I remember calling schools and going, my name's Hugh Van Collum. I'm going to do this. And, and they went, sorry, who are you? And I was like, oh, I, Stu? Yeah. <laughs> did you say Stu? Jack, is that you? <laughs> anyway, um, and so I, I, no one wanted to hear from me. No, one, they were all like, "Yeah, come back in a year, tell me how it's going." And I had a very, I mean, I learned some lessons then in that I thought I had this great message, but no one wanted to hear it. And I'm talking like nearly two years of just what's that saying on the smell of an oily rag or something? I, I think probably butchered that, but yeah, that it was. It was like I was battle. I really battled for a couple of years to try and get it off the ground. So during that time of battle. You know, it's yeah. easy to reflect back on those times now that think things have become, you know, successful. And obviously, you know, like, it, you know, there's a whole story that's come after that. But take me back to those two years. What made you persist, you know, through that time? Uh, the joy of when I actually did get to do it, it just felt like, you know, because it'd be, I'd go and speak to all the 10, 11, and 12s at a school, right? So it'd be 400 kids in an auditorium. And the feeling you get when, you just know it's kind of like you sort of i don't i mean you'd, you'd probably get this but the feeling well, you will get it better than anyone in australia probably but when you get the audience you feel like you've just got one person you're kind of communicating to you bring everyone together and it's like this one like just the joy of of public speaking i guess i love public speaking and i love presenting and and i love telling their stories but then it was the feedback from the kids afterwards who would hang back to talk to you and it's and you'd see them during the presentation. Whenever you looked at them, they'd put their head down straight away. And then you'd finish the presentation, you're packing up your everything, and then there'd be a kid, there'd be a few kids hanging around, they'd come up to talk to you and there'd just be tears and this is going on at home and I've just been through this and this has happened or I've, I, you were talking about anxiety, I never knew what it was, but I, I, I've got that. I didn't know what it was, but I get so worried about silly things, I get panicky. And then you, know, you take them to the, you say, well, we're going straight to the counsellors office right now we're going who's the teacher you trust here most let's go see him right now let's go tell him and then you connect him with that person and then they you know they're getting help where they otherwise weren't so i might only in the early years of the resilience project no one wanted to hear from me i'd do maybe one a month right one presentation a month and that was it and it was tough going when i wasn't uh, doing them but when i would then connect him with the the well-being officer at the school 
and have that experience, I'd go, this, I just have to do this. Like, I just have to keep doing it. It'll, it'll work one day, surely. And then fast forward, you know, four or five years, there was a point where I was doing literally four of these one-hour presentations a day, going from one school to the next, to the next, to the next, and then it started to be workplaces and sporting clubs. And I think it was one year we worked out, it was something like, I don't know, I think it was like 480 presentations for the year. And it was just, it was it was ridiculous. But coming from a place where no one wanted to hear from me to all of a sudden everyone did, I didn't want to ever say no. And in hindsight, that was ridiculous because it burnt me out pretty quickly. But um, again, very long answer to your question. But I think it was, I think it was seeing how desperately kids in this country need mental health support from a different voice. You know, like they're getting it from from really qualified people, people much more intelligent than me, all that kind of stuff. But to have someone jump up and tell them some stories that make them laugh, make them cry, and then say, "Hey, let's get you some help if you need it," I think that was, I think that was what, I, yeah, I think that's why I kept doing it. I think. Okay, so I'm interested in that because you've got a couple of good perspectives on this. Like, you know, like you said, teaching background, then suddenly you're in this arena. So, but you're seeing that when you come in as a speaker and you tell stories, the kids are much more likely to unite and, you know, listen and engage with what you're doing than perhaps that they are with their teachers on a daily basis. Now, part of that's going to be the novelty, right? You know, you're somebody new. And you don't have to, you know, follow all the sort of, you know, boring laws yeah. and rules. But what is your observation in general about the way that we are educating kids? You're in and out of a lot of schools. Yeah. You would have a sense of, are we doing them a good service? Are we doing them a disservice? I mean, I know that that is a, not a one-size-fits-all question either, but what's what are your impressions of our education system? So first of all, on teachers, I think teachers have the most important job in the world. I really do, because the World Health Organization predicts in the year 2030 that depression will be the most common illness in the world and suicide will be the most likely cause of death anywhere in the world by the year 2030. I mean, this prediction was before COVID, so I don't know what COVID's done to that. But um, And teachers are the ones who spend... I mean, they send six hours a day with our kids, with like 25 kids at a time. That is so unbelievably hard. They don't get paid much. And I, I think they're the most... I, had the most, I think they have the most important job in the world. I... As far as education is concerned, I I think we should be spending a bit more time empowering them to understand, like getting kids to to work out what are you really good at, like 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 what are you, like what are your strengths in life. Let's really pursue that because I feel like when we say to someone, you should do this job because it's a safe job, but if it's not their strength, they're coming from a long way back. If that makes sense, I, I feel like. If you were to go, if you were to grab a young Will Anderson and say, like, you are such a gifted communicator, you're such an incredible performer, let's just pile everything into that. Yeah, you need some basic stuff around maths and 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 literacy and numeracy, that kind of stuff, but let's pile so much effort into that. Like, because gosh, you could do some incredible stuff here in in that area of your life. Now, a lot of schools will say, Yeah, we do that, and and that's true. But I feel like empowering kids to go, hey, this is something I'm I'm really good at, and how could I I guess what I'm trying to say is helping kids from a young age try and work out maybe what their purpose is and what their why is. And yeah, I know it changes a lot throughout life, but at least getting thinking about that, I think from a young age, I think really powerful. But just to come back to what you were saying before about when I go to a school, why is it the kids? So I spend the first 10 minutes, I just want to get them laughing as much as possible. Like I feel like I feel like we don't learn from people we don't like. So I feel like I'm a no one. They've got no idea who I am, so they have to like me. And I think laughter, as, as you would know better than anyone will, is, is a good way to to create that environment where people go, yeah, I think I, I like this person. Um, 
And then I hit them with a pretty full-on story about my sister just to like just to bring just to bring him back to like this is actually I'm here for a serious reason just so you know I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the first 10 minutes but I'm here for quite a serious reason this is why I care so much and then you see on the looks of their faces of these kids of like oh I know my mum's going through that or my friend's got that or my and so they all, it all relates they go yep and so they've all got this like yeah I, I know they're thinking about the person they love who's struggling and then we just talk about all the things you could possibly do to help that person or to help yourself and then like a big thing at the end about like it's nothing to be ashamed of if you're struggling with this because the research would say 40% of the people in this room are, so it's common. And the fact that, you know, we we see sports people like break a finger and they keep playing and we say, oh, it's so courageous. Well, how courageous are you that you just keep fronting up every single day? You feel stressed, you feel anxious, you feel down and you keep showing up. Just so unbelievably brave of you. And we give them a big pump up and and um and I just say, hey, if you if you're if you are struggling, and you haven't spoken to anyone yet. Like, let's make today the day. Let's there's let, 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 let's start your journey today because you don't need to feel like this. And it's a for whatever reason that formula of laughter and then full on stories and a bit more laughter and then here's hey let's let's this is let, let, let's make today the day. It just sort of works. I don't know why it just it just kind of does. Um, and I'm not saying aren't we amazing? We've helped all these kids. It's that's not what I'm saying at all because it's not one size fits all, but I, I hope that a lot of kids around the country have at le- the very least sought help after we went and spoke to them, I guess. Okay, so uh, I guess this gets to the whole heart of, you know, life and why we're here and what we prioritise, right? Yeah. And I think that the, if the last year and a half hasn't made us think seriously about that, and I, I think there has been a lot of people who've thought very serious about where their priorities are and what it is that they do love and what it is that they do every day that they don't love and, you know, what they missed and what they didn't miss about our really changed society. So um, do you have a life philosophy? I guess that's where all these conversations start. What You know, this whole podcast is essentially a long-winded way of asking people what they think the meaning of life is or at least what they think the meaning of their life is. Do you have, you know, a life philosophy? I feel like with what I do for work, I should have one well articulated that I can just reel off really quickly for you, Will. But I, I don't think I do. I think, I think the if I was to look at the way I live my life and then try and then go back and word some kind of philosophy, I would say it's, I would say it's to pay attention to the good stuff, like as it's happening, because I feel like even in a time like this, we're still surrounded by so many incredible things. I mean, we're so hardwired to pay attention to negative, the way we live our lives. We're so seduced by a negative. It derails us. We can have one negative thing happening happen in a whole 24 hours and that's all we think about. Yet we're surrounded by so many incredible things. So I think paying attention to the good stuff. My my wife, uh, no, not my wife, my, <laughs> my, my brother's wife. <laughs> God. Well, and I, that's a very messy situation, it turns out. Well, on that, my I when I so my wife actually went out with my brother. Maybe that's why I'm confused. When they were like twelve or thirteen years old, <laughs> and I was my brother said to me, so he was thirteen and I was nineteen. And he said, "Oh, there's this new girl. This new girl come to school. Her name's Penny. She's really hot. I'm going to ask her on a date." And he said, "Are you 
I, my part-time job was at the cinema as an usher, and he said, are you working at the cinema? Can I get her in for free? I've got no money. And I went, yeah, of course. And I, so I met her when she was 13, <laughs> and I was 19, which sounds really – I shouldn't have said that. But um, no. <laughs> we, 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 didn't, we weren't together until we were in our 30s, so just to be very clear. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to be very clear. You might lose your working with children license very quickly, I think, if you didn't clarify that. Yeah, just to be – anyway – so I'll back on the attention on, on the topic of paying attention to the good stuff. So my sister-in-law, that's it, my brother's wife was telling a story the other day uh, that in the middle of Melbourne's lockdown, the really harsh one last year, she was going for a walk and she was just had, had a new baby and she's walking with a new baby on a um, strap to her and she's walking along and it was really grim in Melbourne at this point. And she just walked past this old man. She said he would have been in his 80s, probably maybe even 90s. He was walking quite slowly, had his mask on. And as she walked past him, he looked at her and he held up a sign and the sign said, I'm smiling. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> just, and I just, I think we're surrounded by little things like that all the time, but we're not really paying attention to them. Um, so we got to, you know, I mean, that, that's what these kids showed me in India. They were so, I mean, they didn't have much or not much that we would consider valuable, but they didn't miss a beat. Something good happened. They were fully immersed in it, they were fully engaged in it. I mean, we're... We, I think we said at the top of this, of this interview, you know, something around, you know, there's always someone who's got it worse than us and, um, and it's, it's not, you know, we don't want to be told that. I think a little while ago we, we were, um, I had to do, oh, that's what I had to do the Today Show in New Zealand, but I had to do it from Melbourne. So it's like, I'm terrible on TV. I don't know how you do it well. I am so bad on camera. But I had to get into the studio at 4.30 in the morning in Melbourne. So 4.30, I'm just, I'm no chance of doing well. And the night before, my daughter wouldn't go to sleep. And then my son woke up at midnight because he'd, he'd wet the bed. Um, and I said, he said, I've wet the bed. And I said, hang on a minute, you're wearing a nappy. And he said, he's four. And he goes, yeah, my penis missed. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't his fault. <laughs> his penis had missed. Anyway, so, I've, and then I'm, then I'm really, <laughs> Then I realized we'd run out of nappies and I'm, so I had to go and buy nappies at one in the morning. I had to be on air and uh, alive until in three and a half hours. And I was in the worst. I was so angry. I was stressed. I was worried. I was anxious and I was just pissed off at the world. And then I just thought, today in India, there were 350 positive cases of 350,000 positive COVID cases. A friend of mine who's in India, in India sent me an email saying he'd seen a fight break out in a queue for a hospital over an oxygen tank, two families. Like we're talking kids and mums fighting over the one oxygen tank to save their loved one's life. And I did have this thing of, ah, I'm safe. You know, like I'm safe here. I don't have to queue up for these nappies when I find them at one in the morning. And if I, you know, if I don't get them, we're all going to live. Like, and, and yeah, my son might wet the bed again. And, and do you know what? Yeah, I'll be tired tomorrow. I'll definitely be tired. And I probably won't do the best interview but you never do good interviews on TV anyway, so that's fine. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I went from this is gratitude, right? I went from a so angry. It's impossible. It's impossible to experience the emotion of gratitude and have a negative emotion at the same time. I went from being extremely down on my situation to I, I was flooded with gratitude, and 
It, it's amazing. I don't even know why am I telling this story. I've forgotten, but I think we're talking about my philosophy on life. That's it. My philosophy. You know what? It's your philosophy on life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you've got a life philosophy that needs to be written down in a book, not not just extrapolated in a pithy slogan on the podcast. That's fine. We've got time. That's the whole point of this. So it was a very Billy Connolly esque telling of your life philosophy. Where yeah. That's you it. wandered so far away from it that you're like, what? Are I can't talking remember about? what. So I'm on TV in New Zealand. I remember Remember that. I'm, I'm starting to see what that guy meant the other night. Maybe he wasn't referring to the fact I was funny. Maybe I just got lost a lot of the time when I was trying to do my presentation. So I think that it's an interesting thing because I think that by nature I am probably what would be described as a, you know, a, a, a pretty positive person as well. doesn't mean that I don't experience negative emotions and certainly doesn't mean that, you know, I don't have my own challenges around my mental health. But I think my brain falls a little to, you know, being grateful for what it is that, you know, the opportunities I have, the place I live, the country I live in, the, you know, for any drawbacks and, you know, disenfranchisement of other groups, you know, I, I, I look at, you know, my life and, you know, the opportunities that I've had and I'm incredibly grateful. So that when bad things happen, sometimes it's even hard to genuinely process a moment. So this is where I, I'm interested because I understand the idea of the being grateful for what you do have, mm. you know, like, you know, but is there a point where like people don't deal with something, something bad going on their, in their life almost because they're too busy being grateful for what they have? Does that make sense? I haven't articulated. No, that I, know, I know what I, you mean. I know what you mean. Uh, I don't know. It's actually a really good question. I've never ever been asked that before. I I feel like if you are properly, I mean, here's the thing. I gave an example of how you can practice gratitude as a reaction to something. Yeah. But I think the best way to do gratitude is to proactively every night before you go to bed, whether you write it down, just, hey, what are three things that went well for me today? Not Everyone falls down because everyone says, what are three things am I grateful for? And that gets so boring so quickly because you go, family, friends, my job, my house, food, water, shelter, I don't live in poverty. And you just go, this is boring. But what went well for me today? Um, I had a nice coffee this morning. I saw the sunrise. Actually, I didn't, I didn't want to see the sunrise this morning. <laughs> I wanted to still be asleep. <laughs> but but like even a silly one, like, like the traffic is really good today. I mean, we're in lockdown, that's why. But it, I'm in Collingwood here and it took no time to get here. Um, uh, my, my daughter was, was like, she was awesome. We had the best breakfast sitting there on the table together. Like just, just little things that go well for you. Every single night, if you think of three, if you write down three, if you discuss three with your family, whatever it is, what happens is you slowly start to rewire your brain to pay attention to the positives. We're all hardwired for this negativity bias where we're just, which is what I spoke about before, in a not a in not a very articulate way, but where it's called the negativity bias where we're scanning the world for the negative. This slowly starts to shift us till we pay attention to the positive. But I think what it does, I don't think it, just, I don't think it distracts you from the things that are going or detracts you from the things that aren't going well. I think they just help you deal with them in a much healthier way. Yeah. Okay. Good answer. So I'm very fascinated by, you know, this sort of negativity bias idea mm. because it absolutely is true. I think it's, uh, you know, as a an easy way for me to articulate it is I could have, yeah, let's put it on this podcast. If you go to the iTunes ratings of this podcast, right, like <laughs> it's produ- there's probably 3,000 five-star ratings and there's like 14 one-star ratings. <laughs> Which of those do you think I would concentrate on? <laughs> Mate, from experience, I know I feel the exact same way. I feel the exact same way. The exact so that, same way. 
is that intrinsic in us you're saying that is like that's our starting basis we start with that and we have to train ourselves to concentrate on the positives rather than the negative because the evidence in a way like just to use that dumb example just because it's an easy dumb example to use i think no it's a good one it's a good example it's perfect it's perfect example so yeah so how do we because like if it if if i have like three thousand like donuts or whatever versus like 14 like of course i'm like this is great i've got like 3000 donuts but why in this example do i care about the 14 negative reviews as opposed to 3000 positive reviews so because because that's the way we were our brains are programmed going back to the ice age or the the caveman days or whatever you had to pay attention to the negatives because a negative could very well be a threat to your life so if there's a rustling in the bushes, it could be a saber-toothed tiger. You've got to pay attention to it. But we don't have those threats to our lives anymore. <laughs> well, actually, now in 2021, maybe we do. <laughs> a couple. <laughs> maybe, but, maybe it's going to be helpful. But, but yeah. um, there were- You can check Twitter. They'll keep you up to date on what's going on. <laughs> put your phone down. <laughs> Saved you four hours. So, so, so we used to have to pay attention to the negatives. Our brains had to like go, what's happening there? What's happening there? We don't really have those threats to our lives anymore. What, what we have threats to now is our ego. And so we're hardwired to pay attention to the threats to our ego, right? And so we, um, and so we noticed that we, we, you know, if you've got a podcast and people are writing reviews, you look at it and you skim past the amazing, this is my favorite podcast. Oh, you go, you're incredible. You skim past it and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And someone says, you talk too much. Why don't you let? This is from my personal experience, but for, for our podcast. But you talk too much. Why don't you let your guests speak more? And I'm like, get. F- I get so like worked up about it. <laughs> Whereas I don't get. I don't have an emotional response at all to the good stuff. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's good, good. Hang on, what yeah. are you? So yeah, I don't know. I feel like. I mean, I, I, I. Because even in an evidentiary sense, if we can have the time to step back and process that, like, com- yeah, like as a, you just like. They're all listening to the same podcast. So literally, you can just go, the people who don't like the way that you do it are massively outweighed by all these people who do like the way that you do it or are fine with the way that you do it. Yeah, However, however, here's what I'm painting. Now has much more power. This one person who's not into you has much more power over you than all these lovely people who are supporting what you do (laughs) and rating it and like writing a nice review. No, I don't care about your opinions. This dude who hates me, this is who I need to. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because you get, I remember, I used to get quite affected by the stuff I would, some people would sometimes write nasty stuff on social media to me. Not not too often, I, I have to say, not too often. But I remember on the same day, right, I was, I think we have to remember there's something going on with that person. And the example I'll give is I was, um, I got to mouthful of abuse on social media for something I'd written. I can't remember what it was. It was about, it was, just, it was a nice message about someone who'd been through something and someone wrote me, just lots of swear words, basically, like, go fuck yourself, you're an idiot, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I got so upset about it. I was looking up the person. I was like, hey, what have I done to... And then I went for a walk down Smith Street in Collingwood, right? And there's a really, sadly, some really some sad stuff with homelessness, all that kind of stuff there. And I'm walking down the street, and a guy's walking towards me, and he almost said, word for word, the exact same thing. He said, get fucked, as he walked, and like really aggressively at me. And when I saw it face to face, my response was, geez, I hope that guy's okay. What's happened to him? Yeah when I saw it face to face, right? But when someone said it to me over social media, I wanted to argue with him. I wanted to like, I wanted to win an argument with him. I wanted to, but it's funny, you see it face to face and you see what it looks right. like. My thought was, oh, what's happened to that person? I hope they're all right. So it's funny, isn't it? There's empathy in face to face, like where you see the story, but when it's over social media, you get all, 
Yeah, I mean, we're getting on to a different okay, topic so here. This, but- this bre- well, it is a different topic, but it's an interesting topic nevertheless because we have grown up now in this technical... Yeah, I mean, the information age, this you know modern technology information age where it's never been easier for people to access information all over the world, talk to people all over the world, but it's created a different version of who who we are as human beings. Mm. What, what effect are you seeing? Because I, I do believe that when people see each other face-to-face... You know, the discourse is different. People do have more empathy for people. People do have more, um, you know, time for understanding that that person might be going through something else or even just the idea that you can be friends with somebody who you disagree with. Hmm. Like the idea of almost starting this show originally was I wanted to have a bunch of my friends on and ask them about life and my thought was that they would all have very different ideas about you know what the meaning of life was and what was important to them and that has been the case i found and that was kind of the point of the show to just sort Mm. of say everybody thinks life is about different things and it's okay they're all you know these are all okay things to think your life is about yet so i look around my friendship group oh man there are people who believe completely different things to what i believe about the world who i really like as friends but if i did not know that person and they said that thing online i would think they were the dumbest person on earth and like it would make me angry and maybe i'd even want to respond to their stupid opinion but like so okay so just tell me what's your observation of the effect that like technology and the the rise of technology has had on the way that we interact as human beings gosh i don't even that's a i don't know where to start it's such a great that's such a great question. Um, so there's a few things. I, I Just on what you just said there, I, I've actually seen the breakdown of a friendship in a WhatsApp group that I'm part of. People have been friends since we were like 12, 13, really close, over communication that's happened via WhatsApp chat. Like, And it happened during the height of the pandemic and everyone was really stressed like we spoke about at the top of the interview and heightened emotion. And this communication over WhatsApp has just broken these, it's destroyed these friendships, right? It's done. Um, because of different views. Now, we have always had those different views, but face-to-face, there's sense of humour around it. We give each other shit, take the piss, that kind of stuff, like blokes do in Australia. But it's fa- And it works face-to-face. There's a dynamic around it where it just it, you kind of roll with it and you understand it. And But when it's coming in written message, written form, it's just harder to, to see the nuances of taking the piss and all that kind of stuff, and it's, it's destroyed those friendships. So that's where I've seen it happen practically. But but here's what I think the issue is with social media and technology is. So we have physical needs, you know, food, water, shelter. And if, if we had those taken away from us, we wouldn't live too long. We also have psychological needs. So we have the need to feel loved. We have the need to feel validated. We have the need to for status um, as, as three examples. Now, it's no coincidence that we feel like we can get those met on social media, right? You want to feel loved? Put up a photo of yourself and people literally have to press a love heart button to let you know that they that they like it. So we feel like we're getting loved. You want status? There's no coincidence. There's actually a status update option in Facebook. You feel like you can get status by posting your status to everyone. Um, you want to feel validated? We're turning to show-offs. It's like show and tell for adults almost. You know, show and tell as a kid at school, you get up and just say to everyone, I've got this and I won this on the weekend. Thanks very much. And the next person gets up. It's just showing off really. That's what we're doing as adults, not because we're show-offs naturally. We just desperately want validation. And and I feel like, I mean, social media is not real. It's a parody of real life. So you can't really get love over social media. You can't really be validated and you can't really get status. 
but we feel like we can. So that's where we're going. We should be getting love from face-to-face human authentic connection, not over a screen. screen. We should be validated by by participating in activities that we're good at and, and, and being there with other people, achieving things with other people. We should be getting status just by participating in community as a citizen and, and, and getting the natural status that comes with contributing to someone else's life, making someone else's life better and, and feeling good because of that. That's where we should be going. But unfortunately, now social media, it's so smart the way they've, they've toyed with our, our, our psychological needs. We've poured it into this thing and we're not getting... And so we become more anxious, we become more depressed, we become more, we become more desperate for love, we become more desperate for, for validation. And so we start yelling these opinions at people. And um, I, I've heard a lot of people recently say, well, it's this day, we just got to work to, I, I, I know it's here to stay, but I, I think we've done a great disservice to the young people. Now, I don't know about you, Will, I'm so grateful I've grown up before social media and devices because... I just worry about this generation of kids who that's all they've ever known. They've been addicted since the age of addicted since the age of twelve or thirteen to their devices and that's that's all they've ever known. And I think we've gonna I, I feel like I feel like smartphones should be illegal until you're eighteen. I really do. I think yeah, you can have a dumb phone or whatever you call it. You can I think kids should be able to text message, phone call and play snake. I reckon that's it. <laughs> it is amazing because we do know. This is the biggest thing about social media, media in general, it's one of those things that we all know. We all know that if you spend too much time online, you, you, you know, your capacity to concentrate on anything goes away. Like totally. the idea of like, you know, sitting and watching something or reading a book, if you've just been reading like status updates online, your brain gets rewired. And we all know this also because these multimedia companies have all this money that they're investing into making sure it is the right color and the updates flow at the right time and that we hook you in by either provoking. And of course, now that they've realized that one of the best ways to keep engagement online is to offer something that people don't like that Mm. they can react to, right? So literally you now, we know this, this is not a secret. This is not a conspiracy theory. We suddenly haven't put on our tinfoil hats. There have been a whole bunch of studies and you know journalism and reporting and you know government hearings and investigations into the idea that these big companies are working on all these things all the time to get as much of our attention as they possibly can and of course because of the size and nature of the companies they have the best psychologists in the world they have the best you know they're well beyond any of our capacity as amateurs let alone the fact that we're just like hey kids we don't really understand this and it's all designed to get you to ad- completely addicted to it, but have a crack because yeah, I t- we have just decided <laughs> as a society not to have this conversation. Knock yourself out. Go. Yeah. Go I'm go sure this will have no detrimental long-term <laughs> effects on our civilization. I, I really hope one day we look back on it like we look back on cigarettes and, and yeah. like just like, <laughs> how on earth was that okay? That Because it's, it's – um, so, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've – my memory, my short-term memory is shot. So mm-hmm. I'll go, oh, I'm going to go get my jumper from upstairs. And Penny, my wife, will go, oh, Cuba's get my phone for me. And I say, no worries. And I go upstairs. I get my jumper and I go, what was I? I can't remember what I was. Uh, and I go downstairs, she goes, where's my phone? Oh, fuck my God, you asked me five seconds ago. I, for a while, I was getting quite stressed. It was like, it's like, do I have early onset dementia here? Like, what is it? I kept forgetting the most simple things. I'd get in the car and go, oh, I've got my car keys. Or... And I was getting really stressed about it. And then I was reading about one of the things that our phone's doing to us is it's destroying our schemas. So our schemas is like the, it's like if you see an orange 
and then an orange witch's hat. They're not connected at all in any way, except you'll go, oh, they're both the same color. Your brain processes that. And that helps us with creative thought, the creative process, with problem solving, that we can join these schemas. Apparently, the time we're spending on our phone with the attention span of the of social media videos and posts and, and photos and reading quick things, it, apparently it's destroying these or breaking down these schemas. So we don't have the ability to our short-term memory is being destroyed. We don't have the ability to focus for, for that long and we can't join abstract ideas together anymore the way we used to be able to because the, our phone is just destroying that ability. That scares the hell out of me. Like I find that really scary thinking how much time we, we've spent on the phone in the last 15 years. I just wish someone said to me, hey, heads up, here's this thing, just so you know, <laughs> like all the creative, the beautiful creative stuff you've learned throughout your life, this is going to start deteriorating the more time you spend on here. I just feel like it, it's such a stitch up. <laughs> That's an understatement. Right. Like it's, it's a like. Is it worth it? Like, yeah. and also, just is it worth it as much as we're using it? I think that's the thing. Yeah, well, it's there you go. Like, there you go. I like, totally. I'm not saying that you should be throwing your phone in the ocean. Like, there's some wonderful things that have come from, you know, social media. There are, you know, voices that are being heard in debates and mm. discussions now that never would have been heard. There totally. are disenfranchised people who finally have an opportunity to explain their story to the world. And I think there are, you know, if you are a, you know, kid you know, who, like, I remember growing up in the country, like, I mean, you know, imagine what it would have been like for, you know, a gay kid growing up in the country or a goth kid going up in the country because there's only two of you in the entire town, you know, mm. right? Or at least two of you who feel comfortable enough to, you know, put the Robert Smith hair up and, you know, wear your black T-shirt and walk around town. It, these days, that person can be online and have an incredible community of kids all around the world to share stories. There are so many positives but it's like we've just given up on the debate that, well, I guess we just have to have all these negatives as well. Yeah. <laughs> Is totally. there not some readjustment where we can go, no, let's have all the good positive stuff about social media, but maybe can we just deal with some of the terrible side effects of it as well? Can we pay some attention to that? Yeah, I feel like it must be – there's got to be some kind of working committee put together at a very high level that goes like – Here's the really good stuff. I think you're right. There's some really great stuff we can do on there, but then there's some really damaging stuff as well that needs to be addressed for our young people, if not anyone else, just for our young people. You know, I think about, I've got two young kids and I'm terrified thinking about, you know, I realized I had a problem a little while ago when my four-year-old, he was one, he was sitting on my lap at a cafe and I was reading The Age in the newspaper and he tried to swipe a photo in The Age. <laughs> he tried to swipe across, to try to go to the next photo. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> what is happening he's won like and ever since then i we've been very good at keeping the phones away but yeah we we got to do we have to do i we owe it to the next generation we ask so much from them you know they're gonna have to do a lot the next generation with climate change and with social change they're gonna have to do a lot but we're not helping them at the moment at all so this is an interesting area of discussion there is a, a episode of this show that i did with uh, owen eastwood who is a you know well i yeah, he, he works with sporting teams as well, very much around the sort of, you know, sports psychology world, you know, sports motivation. Um, he has a, you know, a part Maori background and he talked about the idea of, now, I, this always sounds comical when I say it, but I say it with respect. I believe it is pronounced whakapapa, but it's spelt W-H-A-K-A. Yeah, it's, I know, it's it's one of those things where you don't want to be culturally insensitive, but I believe it is pronounced whakapapa. Okay. And... But it's the idea of where we are as human beings, how connected we are. So this generation, we 
are connected with our history. We talked about this with Billy Connolly. You both shared that, right? He's part of our story. Mm. But there was a story of his story before him. He has his own story. But there is a connection between what came before us. But we think a lot about what came before us. But as human beings, we often think about us as being the last or greatest evolution and everything that came before has been leading up to us. Mm. And he is much more about the idea of thinking, no, you are part of the history of the next generation as well. You know, you're a link in this chain and you've got to think as much about the past as you do about, you know, the future and and Mm. vice versa. You know, you've got to remember, and he says it to these people in these sporting teams, you know, you are part of the story of this club, but, you know, you are connected to the future of this club. What you do now will determine some of the future of this club and that is also an important part of your story and connecting it to the history. And I just think it's a really cool concept you know and i think that at the moment we don't think enough about the future that we are leaving the next generation yeah Discuss. we're all um yeah <laughs> 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 you know, i guess it's like the idea yeah you know, we're all history's actors that's the you know but I, i'm gonna have to listen to that that episode because i i love i do a lot of i'm with port adelaide football club now and and I've never really been with one club for a long time, but I met this group of young men and Michael Voss got me there and I just love him. And I just thought, and I'm, I'm very well entrenched in Port Adelaide footy club now. And I, and I, we've done a lot of stuff on their story, understanding their story, telling their story, sharing their story as a way of connecting them. I mean, what we all did, like, regardless of whether you play football or not, or you're part of a sporting club, we're all desperately seeking connection. Like we want to be connected. That's what we need to to survive is to be connected and and anything that helps you to connect to your story the the history yeah I, I suppose the even i mean we talk so much about the the power of being wherever you be wherever you are right be but i think the better you understand where you are the the the, the easier it is to be connected i feel like i'm talking shit at the moment but i <laughs> but i no, no. Um, but I, I i understand yeah. so like, I think sometimes, let's use football as an example. I think this is a football supporter and it's something that I have tried to readjust because there is, like, when you are passionate about football, like, it, it, can, it can become all-consuming and that's just as a fan, not as somebody who's working inside a professional sporting organisation. Mm. It can seem like the most important thing in the world. Yeah. But we've got to remember that the game's not even, like, when if you talk about Australian football, because I think it's a good example. Yep. I love Australian football. Yep. Like, Likewise. there was points in my life where the... The results of my sporting team on the weekend would determine how I felt for like you know days or weeks afterwards, you know. Like, and who do you back for? Was, uh, the Western Bulldogs. Yep. And okay. yeah, so in 2016 we won the only premiership that I've seen in my lifetime. The only time we've been in the grand final in my lifetime, and partly it was because we'd achieved that success, but partly I think it was where I was just getting to in my life, which was that I started to remember the thing I always say about AFL football is we. We think it's important because we've decided to think it's important. You go to any other country in the world, they don't play the game, right? We've all just decided this is important. Let's always remember that when we're thinking everything's really important, it's only important because we as a collective, we as a group, we as tribes have decided this is important. But sometimes when you're there at the game and you're feeling terrible because your team lost, it's good to remind yourself, oh no, this is what I signed up for. This is part of, this is the point. The reason that I support a team is so I can feel either good or bad on the weekend. I can go to a game. I can experience these emotions. I'm not going to let it depress me. This is actually fine. This is what I signed up for in the first place. It's only important because we decided it was important. 
Yeah, well, a mate of mine doesn't barrack for a team but loves footy. And so I when I, I often, when, when my team wins, I think, yeah, I don't know, like, well, I go to the footy with him, my team wins, I'm euphoric. And I'm like, you're missing out on this. Like, choose a team, this is great. And then when we lose, I'm like, God, I'm so jealous. <laughs> you just don't care. <laughs> All right. I have some standard questions I ask everybody on this show, and I would like to ask you some of those questions. What do you think, Hugh, happens when you die? Nothing. It's like before you were born. It's just, it's just nothing. <laughs> I just, it's a very quick, simple answer, but I just feel like uh, you will, the people who who are left behind will be extremely sad, but hopefully better off because you are around, but there's no existence. You're, you're you know, I, I still, when I'm, I think my granny, if I talk about my, my granny who I, I love so dearly, she passed away 10 years ago. I, I had a huge Im- impact on my life. I tell her stories when I'm on stage at the moment because I make people just smile and laugh. And so she has a lasting impact on us. But physically that she's not, I don't think she's watching down. I don't think she's, you know, I just, yeah, I, I think it's just like before, just like before you were born. You're, you're, you're nowhere physically. Okay, so this is the... I mean, and look, it's a pretty common answer on this show, to be honest, is, you know, that tends to be what people think. Not always, but it tends to be. And so then I like to ask this question, which is the one that I think those who, um, you know, subscribe to like organized religions or, you know, some sort of grander philosophy than that would say, then how and where do you find meaning in your life? Or how do you know that meaning is an important thing in your life? Do you feel that that is intrinsic to us as human beings, the search for meaning? Because you're clearly somebody who, you know, you don't believe that you're going to be judged at the pearly gates or, you know, any whatever, you know, philosophy people might subscribe to. And yet you've dedicated your life to, you know, it, the helping people find meaning in their life and in and, and a space as human beings and to be as full of human beings as they can possibly be. And you've shown great, you know, like you said, empathy for other human beings. So outside a religious framework, where does that motivation to, you know, protect, look after, educate other human beings come from? Jeez, that's a good question. Do you ask all your guests that? That's <laughs> bloody good. Um, I mean, well, I ask, I mean, I don't think that there is an inherent connection between i've never understood that it was one of my things when i wasn't hugely religious as a kid despite the fact that i wanted to be a priest people who listen to this show regularly will know that i wanted to be a priest uh (laughs) it was just this you know dressing in black and standing in front of a room full of people captivating their attention that appealed to me (laughs) not the grand philosophy (laughs) but (laughs) well i watched your i watched your that the now the the show you did which i i don't know if Qantas bought it but it ended up on um, as part of like, you could watch it when you fly on Qantas. It's one of, it's oh, one of the right, best. Okay. I don't know which. Do you, do you know which one I'm talking about? No, absolutely no idea. But oh, it's one of the best things I've. I've honestly, it's so unbelievably good that stand-up show you did. Um, anyway, I watched it the other day on the plane, and it was um, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Well done. But it was you were standing in black. You were all dressed in black, engaging a whole room. It was like you're living in that dream, but there was no religious element attached. In fact, I think there's a bit of the opposite at some point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess when I was firstly talking about this, it's the idea of how do we find meaning as human beings in life? What is life about? Like what gives you that purpose in your world that you're like, no, I think – because what I'm hearing is that you're looking at the way that we're living and there's a part of you that says we are living wrong. 
And I can't help but look at the world and think we could live better. We could do this better. As human beings, if we are, as you assume and I assume, that we are an accident in the corner of the universe and we might be the only time in the history of the universe that this happens the way that it is happening right now. That's, that is how unique we are. Like this is the one shot at humanity, whatever the fuck it is. And I'm not sure that we're exactly nailing it. No, it's so true. It's so true. I think, um, there's so many things I want to say on that. I, (laughs) um, where do I start? I feel like, so just to come back to, 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 to Billy Connolly, his philosophy around, I mean, we said before, like he's come from so much hardship, sexual abuse, all that kind of stuff. He tells this great, I'm sure you've probably heard it talking about how, where he grew up in the, 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 like the equivalent of the commissioning flats or whatever. And he would always hear on the news how people would say absolute depravity. There was five families sharing one toilet. It's not good enough. It's a disgrace. And, and he says, his words, he said, I thought it was fucking brilliant. He said, in the middle of winter, the toilet seat was always warm. He said, you'd go down, he said, it, he said it was these, and he goes, not your pishy little plastic ones that you can't walk over. He said, big wooden ones. And he said, it'd be three in the morning and you'd, you, you would happily go to the toilet because it was always going to be warm because someone else had been keeping it warm for you. Like, that's how, uh, that's how we should be living life. Like, let's, let's like, you know, I feel like we're so quick to demonize everything. Um, here's, a, here's what I want to say on, on, on the, the question though. I remember sitting, I remember day six, I think it was, on my trip to India while living in this village, one of the families said, do you want to come and drink tea at our place after school? And I said, I'd love to. Every night is a different family, come and drink tea at our place. And I went into this mud hut. The whole house was the size of a bedroom. And by the way, I'm not advocating poverty for some people who like to jump on my back. I'm not saying that's the answer. But I remember sitting in this mud hut and it wasn't like we, if someone said, do you want to come over for a cup of tea as a family in Australia? It might be one of the parents are still at work, kids are running around crazily on iPads, whatever. It was everyone. At four o'clock in the afternoon, the whole family, the extended family, neighbors, strangers walking past, they'd sit in a circle around this pot of tea and this big pot of tea and they'd all just drink tea. And I remember sitting there thinking, I can't even, I can't communicate with those people. It's a different language. This could not be more foreign to me. And yet, I couldn't feel more calm. I couldn't feel more relaxed. I couldn't feel happier here. And I remember thinking to myself, I reckon these people are onto something. I don't know what it is. I reckon they're onto something. I had no idea what back then, but um, you know. And then I remember later that night, lying in, lying on the floor, trying to go to sleep, thinking yeah, they might be onto something. But I wonder if we're doing a lot wrong back home. Now, again, this is in two thousand eight. I had no idea what. But there's so many signs that support what you just said, Will, that we're not nailing it. Like in Australia right now, we're we're currently the second most medicated country in the world for anxiety disorder. Um, we're amongst the loneliest people in the world. The research done on loneliness in two thousand and nineteen would suggest that. Uh, we don't feel like, as Australians, we don't feel like many people know us well. And we also don't feel like in a crisis, there are that many people we can turn to for support relative to other countries around the world. So I'm just talking about Australia right now, but things, there's a loneliness epidemic as well as this pandemic that's going on. There's horrific rates around anxiety. So yeah, there's, there's clearly, we could be doing it a lot better than we're currently doing it. And I feel like to come back to, I guess, my philosophy, which I've never articulated before about, you know, let's just get better at paying attention to the good stuff. You know, it's a, it's a toilet seat. There's one toilet for five families or it's a warm toilet seat all the time. You know, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of way of looking at things. 
Okay, so um, obviously we're getting towards the end of this, but I've still got some more standards, so I'm going to... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I keep giving you... Okay. My answers are too long. Sorry, mate. <laughs> no, you, well, certainly you've come to the right place for long answers, okay. and also I am somebody who gives the longest answers. I am the worst okay. interview subject because I ramble on forever, so I am in no position to judge you. <laughs> there will be someone in the comments who says, I talk too much, not you talk too much, oh. and I will try not to read it or concentrate <laughs> on it and learn the lessons of this very podcast. Uh, so on my desk, I have as close to what I would call a motivational saying. Um, and it says, uh, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And the way that I interpret that is like when I'm, it's for me, it's more a work thing. You know, I use it as motivation for my work when I'm sitting down with a project just to remind myself to concentrate less on whether it'll be successful or not successful. Imagine itself that it's guaranteed to work, now what do you want it to look like? If you're going to work every day doing this thing, what do you want it to look like? You do not have to make it about work, by the way. I'm just saying that's yeah, what yeah, it yeah, yeah. Gotcha. To me, uh, what would you attempt, Hugh, if you knew you could not fail? I'm automatically thinking about myself as a 19, 20-year-old, like being scared of stand-up, but thinking there's nothing I'd rather do. <laughs> than that. Uh, that's what I first think about. And now I think, well, I've kind of somehow in this roundabout way fashioned this life for myself where it's, I dabble in it a little bit, but I have this safe space of like, if someone says, I didn't think it was funny. I go, yeah, I wasn't meant to be made. I'm trying to like help people. Like, and then if someone says, I didn't find his help talk very helpful. I go, yeah, it was just meant to be a bit of a laugh really. <laughs> like I've created this really safe space for myself where I'm a bit of a pussy in both areas, I guess. No, it's good. I um, think that's actually a very, very smart place to be able to play. It's <laughs> good for my ego. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I used to have a line in one of my shows where I would say, um, you know, like I'm, I, I, cause I have a journalism degree. Uh, like, and I said, I don't have a comedy degree. And I will tell you, this is a very funny show for a journalist. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's no, very true. Um, what would I do? I don't know. I I feel I I love. I can't help but think about work. Um, I think I'd want to. I said to Beck, we spoke about for Beck Sutherland when we were organising my tour dates for this year. I said, "What about?" And I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. And I might think about taking this out afterwards. Well, I don't know. But I remember saying to her, what about the comedy festival? Do we want to try and do one that's just, I just have a crack at comedy? Like, we just, and she said, she says, absolutely, let's do it. Let's do it. You, you tell me when and, and, and we'll do it. We'll do it this year if you want. I'm, I'm ready to, we can, we can do that. And then she sent me a, an email saying, just let, let, let us know. And I just didn't write back to it. I was like, no, 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 no. I think I'll just stay in my safe. I think I'll, I'll start it again. I think I'll stay in my safe place of being like a guy who helps with well-being. And if you find it funny, that's a good bonus. But I think deep down, I would love to have the courage to do what you have done well, but I'm, I'm not sure. I think sure. you should do it. I think I actually think you should do it. I mean, I always say to people in general, this is very different, but like if somebody approaches me and says, I'm thinking about you know, trying stand-up, like, you know, this is not someone who's working in the space you're working in, like just some, anyone who says, I'm yeah. thinking about trying stand-up, I always say to them, you should. Because not everyone who tries it has to do it as a career. Like, you know, like it's like skydiving. I've been skydiving a couple of times. I didn't, you know, someone else, you know, strapped me to them and we both jumped out of a plane and I got the gist of it and I'm very pleased I did it, but I didn't have to keep doing it, you know, every week for the rest of my life. Your scenario is a little different. Obviously, you're already like, you know, public speaker. You're talking about the idea of 
can I take what I already do and rather than concentrating perhaps on the yeah. poignant emotional bits as much like ramp up the comedy bits. To be honest, comedy festival shows are a lot in that mix. If you look at Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, but like yeah. Nanette was more of a surprise to the world than it was to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival because mm. there are a dozen shows every year at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival who are in that world of it's funny, it's emotional, it's storytelling, it has a point. Like, it's not a foreign idea to bring in. It's mm. not like you would suddenly have to go, let's get rid of everything that it is that makes me me and makes yeah. me unique and what it is. You could literally just go, I want to do a version of what I normally do, but I just want to be able to concentrate on yeah, ramping up the funny and sort of ramping down the whatever else it is that, you know, that you're replacing with the funny. I think it would be there's a space for you within the festival and I think you would enjoy it. Like you don't yeah. have to it doesn't mean you have to keep doing that. It could be once a year you could go if you really want to see the real funny version of what I do, you know, come to the comedy festival. If you want to see my usual kind of mix, if you prefer that, then, you know, catch me at venues around Australia with the Wiggles or Will Anderson or not there. <laughs> but this is the – I guess I've answered the question well because the, in my head I was thinking the first thing I thought was, yeah, but what if people don't find it funny? What if I fail? <laughs> so I've, that, there you go. That, that's what's stopping me. Maybe I that's can. That's the point, right? Maybe like your skydiver. Point of the question. Yeah, maybe like your skydiver, I can strap myself to you and go on stage with you. <laughs> uh, so okay, so two more questions and then we're done. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what's the best? Well, actually, three. I'm going to go with three. Yeah. Um, what's the best bit of advice you've ever been given? For my my. I know it would have it would have come from my mum and dad at some point. I'm so blessed. I had beautiful parents who are so loving. Um, I, I another one that comes to I, I, I endless stuff from my parents. So I, I, I that goes without saying. Um, there's a guy who's getting a lot of attention at the moment because he's Ash Barty's um, uh, life coach or whatever you want to call it, Ben mm -hmm. Crow, um, and he said to me once. Um, I'd done a show in Melbourne and we were catching up the morning after. Someone had guessed my email and sent me a really nasty email about how much they didn't enjoy it, which always amazes me that you feel like you need to let someone know, <laughs> like via email, <laughs> a long email, what you didn't like about the show. Well, he, um, said, he said, he said, be in the moment. And my moment was that I hated the show and I needed to email this fella. <laughs> and here you go. <laughs> um, here it is. And uh, you're being very mindful right now about how much I hated your show. <laughs> and I'm grateful I don't have to see it again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I was having coffee with Ben Grow, uh, and I, I told him about the email and said how upset I was about it. And he grabbed me like he and he said, "Hey, you're enough as you are right now, without doing the talks, without doing the resilience project stuff. You are enough as you are." And I was like, "Yeah, whatever." But I thought about it later, mm. and I was like, "Oh." We're all, we all, no one ever thinks they're enough. We always think we're going to be this successful. We've got to sell this many shows. We have to make this much money. We have to get this job. We have to buy this house and then we'll be enough. We never feel like we're enough. But the, the truth is we're enough as we are. Before we go and get these marks at school, get into this degree, get this job, we're enough as we are. And I think Ben saying to me, you're enough, very aggressively grabbing my jumper. It, it um, yeah, I think that's the best advice I've got. I'm, I'm enough as I wow. am. And if you're not enough as you are now, no amount of those other things are going to help regardless. That's In fact, they'll make you yeah. feel more and more like you're not, <laughs> you know, like the, you'll be constant. We always want something better than we've currently got in order to be happy. If I get this, then I feel happy. It never works. 
Yeah, particularly if you're setting up for something that you can't possibly achieve also. Yeah. And you're like, now I am. I feel like a terrible failure because yeah. I have made up an arbitrary set of rules by which I judge my life yeah. that nobody else is judging my life on, but I'm a pretty massive failure by yeah. my own standards that I've made up to make myself miserable. Very um, unfair expectations yeah, I, on ourselves, yeah. Uh, let's do the plugs and then I'll um, uh, do my final two questions. So yeah. what, what are we – you're obviously on tour, you know, venues pending all over – Oh, not venues pending, but like dates and yeah. times and borders and, you know, all those sort of things. But I think everybody understands at the moment. If if you want to see Hugh, um, is your website the best place for them? Where do they go? Yeah, the Resilience Project. Details? Yeah, thanks, Will. The resilienceproject.com.au. Um, there are dates all up there. We've had – we've managed to get 10 shows done so far. We've had seven rescheduled and – yeah, it's it's a moving thing. We we, but yeah, resilienceproject.com.au. There's the um, podcast as well, the Imperfects that I do with Ryan Shelton, which um, is I think a nice. If you're thinking, oh, this stuff you've talked about, I need someone to hear this stuff. I need to hear more of it. I think the podcast is a good place to start because first of all, it's free, and also um, what we were talking about before, Ryan's so funny and the humour that funny. he yeah. yeah, it's it, it's accessible yeah. because you can send it to a friend and they won't think oh they think I have to listen to a mental health podcast. They'll piss himself laughing because of Ryan, and then afterwards they'll go, "Oh, I think that was about my mental health." <laughs> yeah, so that's um, uh, so yeah, that's that. That's probably what I would what I would say if they want to hear more. Okay, two final questions. One is, I have a magic wand, and I can give you any skill in the world. You don't have to do your ten thousand hours. You just wake up one day, and you have the capacity to be able to do this thing. What is the skill that you would love to have? Punctuality. <laughs> Oh, yeah, really? I'm so bad at... I mean, you know this meant a lot to me because I was here on time for this chat, Will. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> no, no, I feel like I feel like that's an annoying answer, punctuality. Uh, organisation, I'd love to be, you know, spending all this time becoming very close with Ryan Shelton. He is so organised and everything is just so in place and neat and tidy and I'm all over the joint and I wish I was more like that. I... It takes me back to something you mentioned earlier that I wanted to, you know, just briefly talk about at the time, but I, it is, kind of has some relevance here, which is you talk about the idea of, you know, identifying what kids' passions might be or their areas of interest or at least connecting them with like, hey, they love, you know what, your real big passion in life is that you love animals. Like, okay, yes, you're not really good at like English literature or whatever, but you love animals and, or maybe you love animals and you're really good at English literature. You know what you could do? You can write books about animals. You could be, become an animal documentarian. Here are all these careers that are connected to this thing that you are passionate about. Like, it's not just being a vet. It doesn't, you could volunteer and look after animals. You can have some other job, but you can have a passion for animals. Like, identifying what it is about that person that makes them unique and then connecting those other things in their life to them. I also think would get them more engaged in other subjects. Mm. You know, you talk about the idea of you wish you were organized, you know, for this reason. One of the things I didn't engage in maths at all at school because I just was like, this is not something I need. If somebody at the time was going, hey, well, you know, you want to be a performer and blah, blah, here's what you're going to need to do. Some really basics. Here's how you do your tax. Yes, here's what yes. you're going to need to know yeah. about percentages yeah. for management and whatever. Yeah. Connect it to this thing that I am already interested in incredible life skill like skills that i wish that i had i just were never explained to me in the right way that i would need to know those things anyway i i thought about that at the time and i was reminded of it then when you were talking about organization it is such a great way of it is such a better way of saying it because i think about i dropped out of maths when i was in year 10 because i was so bad at it 
But if someone had said to me, like, you want to exactly like you just said, then you're going to need to understand this. You'll need to understand that. That's that's why. Um, rather than here's an equation that X and A and B want. <laughs> um, no. Just give me but one. Yeah. Of, yeah. Do you want to be able to work out when you get paid to check how much is going to go to the taxman and how much is going to go to yep. your manager? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Just teach me that. <laughs> How much of it goes to ticker tech? Like, really, I can run you through how little of this money you're going to get, basically. What yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I know you're the talent, but you'll end up with about 10%. So here's how you work out yeah. what 10% is. Yeah, here's how you can make it t- that 10 into a sweet 15 if you pay attention. So, um, all right, uh, final question. I have a time machine. I can take you to any uh, point in the future, any point in the past. You can visit yourself. You can give yourself some advice. You can completely ignore yourself and just go to somewhere you'd like to, you know, experience or see. No real limitations, to be honest. Where would you like to go on the time machine? You know, I feel like for a long time I've been saying, I just reckon I was born at the right time. You know, a kid growing up in the 80s and the 90s and then, you know, the digital revolution is so exciting. But for the first time, in my life, I'm thinking, I don't know if this is the best time to be alive anymore. So it's a really topical question. Um, I'd love to go to the future and see. Yeah, we're gonna sort of, we're gonna work our way through this in some way, shape, or form. We'll get through this. And I'll just I'd love to see it right now and then come back to everyone and go, hey, I Will Anderson gave me a time machine, which is amazing. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I just want to let you know we get through it. And because we went through that. Do you know we're actually able to deal with this? And you know, because we because we learnt about contact tracing and because we learnt about pandemics with a with a virus that only that doesn't kill kids, touch wood, isn't that amazing? Like that's how did I don't think we talk enough about that. Like there's this like pandemic, everyone's getting sick, but not kids generally. Well, up until recently, I, I think that's still the case. Mm. Like we're pretty lucky. That's pretty amazing. And maybe, who knows, there's maybe there's a worse pandemic in 2050, but because we've learnt so much now, we're going to deal with that. Maybe that was a pandemic that was going to be too much for us. I'd love to, I'd love to, to, I'd love to go into the future and gather all the data about why this is a good time in the human race. I mean, maybe there'll be history lessons in the year 2080 where they go, it was a tough time, but those people they stood up for, they, 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 they stood up for us, and they, they. Because of them, we're now in this really great position now. And we'll look back and go, we'll tell our grandkids and go, yeah, we're actually, because of us, you know, we, we, we did this, we went through this hard time, but aren't we lucky because of that? I'd love to do that. I'd also love to go and watch Don Bradman bat. I love my cricket. I'd love to go back and see the Don bat. <laughs> That'd be pretty exciting. Um, and yeah. Bit of a tip, don't go to his last game. <laughs> so... <laughs> 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 just somebody who really loves Don Bradman but hasn't done all this reading. He's just like, oh, I bet his last one's the best one. I'd just, like to go and see him about that bit. Just sit down and unpack your sandwich and go, this is going to be a good day. Yeah. Oh, you're good kidding day. me. Oh. <laughs> How do you miss that? looking away when it happens. <laughs> you don't even see him. And then you look for the screen and go, oh, no, they don't have replays here. Oh, I've missed the whole uh, thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? Back in the time machine. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, thank you very much mate it was a pleasure to have you on the show yeah it's it's been a privilege and i and i talk about billy Connolly being a big influence but will but I, I i love what you do and had a big influence on me as well so it's a it's a it's a real thrill to be having this conversation with you so thank you mate